Christopher Yuan was an intelligent young man with a bright future. He enrolled in dental school, and during his studies, he began indulging in a promiscuous homosexual lifestyle and experimenting with illegal drugs. In time, he was expelled from dental school, imprisoned for drug dealing, and diagnosed with HIV. Yet in his hopeless misery, God's grace overflowed for Christopher, and Christ saved him. Now he's sharing the gospel and his story of redemption with thousands globally. Christ saves really bad people to display his glory in them. Sean Hopwood was a college dropout living in a small town in Nebraska working long hours on a cattle farm. One day he entered a a bank with a friend and he yanked out a rifle, uh, terrified some people, and escaped with $50,000. He went on to rob four more banks. After being arrested by the FBI and pleading guilty, Sean spent 11 years in federal prison. Yet, in his hopeless misery, God's grace overflowed for Sean, and Christ saved him. Now, he's an appellate lawyer and professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, using his gifts and his love of justice to reflect the glory of Christ. Christ saves really bad people to display his glory in them. Jeffrey Dahmer was a notorious sex offender and serial killer and committed acts so monstrous that I shouldn't describe them here. He was sentenced with 16 terms of life imprisonment. Yet in his hopeless misery, God's grace overflowed for Jeffrey and Christ saved him. A woman named Mary Mott heard him say on TV that he wished that he could find peace. And so she sent him Bible studies... And a local pastor discipled him. Dahmer confessed Christ, was baptized on May 10th, 1994, and later that November he was murdered in prison. Christ saves really bad people to display his glory in them. John Newton was a troubled young man, arrogant and insubordinate. He rebelled against the uh, Britain's Royal Navy and eventually deserted. He was captured. He was chained. He was flogged. Later on, impoverished. Uh, Newton begged for food. Eventually, he became the captain of a slave trading ship, working for the cruel prophets of the African slave trade. Yet in his hopeless misery, God's grace overflowed for Newton and Christ saved him. And Newton became a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the author of Amazing Grace. Christ saves really bad people to display his glory in them. Are we any different? Ron Radcliffe was the pastor who discipled Jeffrey Dahmer. And he wrote a book titled Dark Journey, Deep Grace. I haven't read it. And he told a journalist why he thought the book sold poorly. And he said that maybe it was linked to people can't see that the story about Mr. Dahmer is a story about all of us. Consider that carefully. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, is guilty of all of it. We are Christopher Yuan. 
We are Sean Hopwood, Jeffrey Dahmer, and John Newton. The, the gospel is actually quite simple. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, miserable, wretched, hopeless sinners. You're among the hopeless sinners Christ came to save. Self-righteousness blinds us to the glory of Christ. If we are to see and enjoy the glory of Christ, we must also see our own sinfulness and need of God's mercy in Christ. Every Christian must understand Paul's point from verses 9 and 10 that the law is laid down for unrighteous people, them included. The law is very helpful for us because it shows us how bad we really are. And the gospel is so glorious to show law-breaking bad people that faith in Christ is the only means to be considered righteous before God. Paul considered himself a lawbreaker. In fact, the preeminent lawbreaker. He knew Christ came to save him. And that humility was powerful for Timothy and for the church at Ephesus. You see, it called them to look to Christ. Now, here's what I hope comes through loud and clear in this message. Christ saves really bad people to display his glory in them. The law can't save people. Neither can myths, genealogies, speculations, or strange doctrine. Only Christ can save. And when he does, he displays for people how great he is. I have six points. And they're all aimed at that. Number one, the glory of Christ is displayed in the strength he gives his people. Paul said, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. How grateful Paul was for the strength that Christ provided him. It was strength to obey and serve God. You may remember Paul telling the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul was no doubt a giant of the faith. Was it because of his self-determination? No. It was the power of Christ at work in him. Whatever Paul did in the service of Christ, it was by the power of Christ. And for that, Paul was so thankful. It's like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul's emphasis was the power of Christ, the strength of Christ at work in him. And that would have encouraged Timothy in his leadership to then confront these false teachers and to confront the problems that were in Ephesus. Now make sure that you connect this to your life. God calls us to do things that are beyond our strength and power. But within his, within his. So God has provided Christ as our strength. God doesn't expect you to provide the power and wherewithal to do his will. Christ will give you his power and wherewithal through faith to do God's will. Now, why was Paul so thankful? Number two, 
The glory of Christ is displayed in his appointment of his people to his service. Look at verse 12 again. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, on the surface, it almost seems as if Paul is praising his own faithfulness. But understand what he was saying. Paul admitted being the chief of sinners. He admitted receiving mercy from God. His point was to say that Christ considered him faithful and appointed him to his service, yet it was by mercy. Paul's gratitude demonstrates that Christ's mercy, Christ's strength are behind Paul's appointment. He was overwhelmed with thankfulness that Christ would entrust a man like him, a man with his past, with gospel ministry. I think 1 Corinthians 7 verse 25 sheds light on what Paul means here in verse 12. Paul wrote, But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Do you understand that? Paul was trustworthy to be in Christ's service, but only because of the Lord's mercy in his life. The Lord did entrust Paul with the gospel because he knew Paul would be faithful by the mercy Christ provided. That's why Paul says in verses 13 and 16, I received mercy. Let's be honest. Some people don't like Christians very much. Because they seem like self-righteous and arrogant critics who, just like the Pharisees, wag their sanctimonious and condemning fingers in everyone's face. And God hates that because it diminishes the glory of his Son. When Christ saves and appoints people to serve him, it's not because they are so great but because they are so sinful and because the glory of Christ will shine brightest in their transformation. Christ seeks, saves, and sanctifies the vilest sinners and enlists them in his service to show the magnificence of his mercy and his grace. Now, I don't know what your life has been like. I don't know the guilt that you may carry. But what I do know is this, to be used mightily of God in gospel ministry depends not on your goodness, not on your righteousness, not on your accomplishments, but rather the mercy of Christ. Be aware of your sinfulness, grateful for Christ's righteousness, and depend upon Christ's strength. Then God will use you. Do you think Christ is glorified in self-righteous, self-sufficient, and self-assured people? Of course not. Of course not. He's glorified in bad people when they humbly trust him as their righteousness, as their sufficiency, as their confidence, and by his power walk in true holiness and righteousness. One more thing on this. Gospel ministry is hard. It's hard. If you look at the demands of gospel ministry and then you look at your own strength, you will be discouraged and ineffective. But when you look at those ministry demands 
the rigors of serving Christ, and then you look at your own weakness, and then you look to the strength of Christ, and then you trust Christ to work in and through you, you will be so surprised at what Christ can accomplish in and through you. Number three, the glory of Christ is displayed in the mercy he gives his people. The mercy. I want you to read with me here, verse 13. Though formerly I was a... Is it up there? Yep, okay. Say it a little louder. Uh, Okay, all right, here we go. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was bad before receiving mercy. Surprising when you consider he was a pious and law-driven Pharisee. Even though Paul was among the, the, the Jewish religious elites, he was a blasphemer. He slandered God. He was a persecutor. He hunted down Christians in order to inflict pain and suffering on them. He was an insolent opponent, a very violent man who took pleasure in causing other people harm. In Acts 7, a a wonderful Christian man named Stephen was brutally stoned to death by a Jewish mob because of his gospel witness. Acts 8.1 tells us that Saul which is Paul before his conversion, approved of his execution. That same day after Stephen's grisly and heinous murder, massive persecution arose against Christians and Acts 8.3 tells us that Saul was ravaging the church, invading house after house and dragging off Christian men and women to prison. Acts 9 tells us that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was was thirsty for Christian blood. Listen to what Paul said in Acts 26, 9 through 11, how he described his life. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And the question I'd like to ask is, where does cruelty like that come from? Paul told us, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Unbelief. Paul, if you think about it, he was a monotheist. He loved God's law. He embraced the Old Testament with passion. Yet he was an ignorant unbeliever who fought against Jesus Christ. The false teachers, they knew about Christ. They were likely elders in the church of Ephesus. Unbelief leads to unimaginable evil. But the mercy of God conquers unbelief. Paul said, but I received mercy. Mercy is what allowed Paul to use the word formerly. Formerly. 
Why would God show mercy to a guy as sadistic as Paul? To display how magnificent and far-reaching God's mercy is. When people who don't deserve mercy receive mercy, Christ is glorified. Number four, the glory of Christ is displayed in the grace, faith, and love he gives his people. Verse 14 is a tidal wave of goodness for your heart, if you believe it. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul was calling Timothy to look to Christ, to see the torrent of God's grace in his life. Grace is God's unmerited kindness. His, his favor. Though Paul was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, God gave him mercy and grace, compassion and favor, pity and approval. Imagine a homeless man. He's sitting against a, a brick wall in, in the city street and he's shaking a little tin cup with a few coins rattling inside. Every so often, someone passes and drops a coin into his cup. All of a sudden, you notice a huge dump truck beeping as it backs towards the man. It's going to crush him. It's headed right towards him, but then it stops, and the bed elevates, and the gate opens, and gold coins flood the man's cup and submerge him in a wave of wealth as the homeless man just gleefully swims in his wealth. From poverty to riches in one act of radical grace. That's the idea of the Greek word hooper pleonazo. Paul was in the habit of adding hooper or super in front of different words. And this word means to superabound, a deluge of God's grace. And the words for me are not in the Greek, but they are implied as the grace of the Lord in superabundance gushed onto Paul. All of Paul's spiritual poverty as a man condemned under the law was overcome by the riches of God's saving grace. To receive God's grace, you must be spiritually poor. Poor. It is your spiritual poverty which creates your desperate need for Christ. Then the riches of God's grace overflow for you with faith and love in Christ. Notice it wasn't simply grace that overflowed. It was also faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now... That's a significant doctrinal statement. So you need to lock in on this. Faith and love are in Christ Jesus. And along with grace, faith and love overflowed from Christ onto Paul. Did faith originate in Paul? Here's where many Christians go wrong. Faith and love are in Christ Jesus and overflow from God. They are lavish gifts. Faith and love cannot be separated from the grace that overflows from the Lord. Therefore, faith and love are overflowing gifts. 
Now, does Paul talk about this concept anywhere else in Scripture? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Galatians 5, 22, Paul said that faith is a fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit must grow in someone faith. Paul said in Philippians 1.29 that belief in Christ is granted or graciously given to the Philippians. This is a common theme in Paul. He talks about it in multiple places. Why did he possess faith and love? Because he was in Christ and had been given faith and love from the overflow of God's grace. Are you seeing this in the text? Paul knew that any faith or love or service or strength or anything that he had came entirely from God's superabounding grace. Dr. Riken said it right, quote, Even faith comes from God. God holds out the free gift of eternal life, but we are too sinful to take it. Our hands are curled up in defiance and rebellion, so God takes us firmly by the wrist, uncurls our fingers, presses his grace into our hands, and wraps our fingers back around it. We lay hold of eternal life with the hand of faith, but God opens the hand. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, some Christians understand their faith as a sort of law-keeping. Here's what I mean. If God commands us to trust Christ, and then we trust Christ on our own volition, the decisive factor in our salvation would be what? Our choice. Which glorifies whom? Us. But if faith is a gift given to us by God to exercise in His Son, then all we contribute to our salvation is our sinfulness. And salvation is from beginning to end God's sovereign grace, which glorifies whom? God. Sovereign grace is glorious because it shows that despite the unrighteousness of the human heart, God is able, God is able to override human sinfulness and will and save people through Christ, giving them a new will, new desires. It is because of God's sovereign grace that the worst people can indeed receive faith and love. Exercise faith and love and glorify God in their life and ministry despite their past. Whatever your past, I don't, I don't know. But whatever it is, may the grace of the Lord overflow for you with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Trust Christ, look to Christ. Trusting Christ tosses you into the tidal wave of God's amazing grace. Number five, the glory of Christ is displayed in his rescue of sinners. Verse 15 is the gospel. Notice that Christ does what the law cannot do. Paul emphasized verse 15. He said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, you've got to believe all that I'm telling you, Timothy. 
You have to believe all of it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, this one verse, it has the power to remove all your guilt, all your shame, all your sin, all your failures, all your insecurities. Christ Jesus came into the world to save really bad people like you and like me. Christ Jesus came into the world. God became flesh and lived among us. Why? To save. To save what? Sinners. Wretched, miserable sinners. Lawbreakers need to be saved. Not good people, not righteous people, not people on Santa's legendary nice list. Bad People, really bad people. Jesus came to save the kind of people described in verses 9 and 10. The lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, homosexuals, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. Jesus came to save those people. Jesus told Zacchaeus this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost and the implication for Zacchaeus is he was lost. To be saved by Christ, you need to be a really bad person. Otherwise, what need do you have of him? Why do you want Jesus? If you're a righteous person that has it all together, Jesus didn't come for you. Think twice before you call yourself a Christian. Think twice, be slow. Because when you do, you imply that you are a wretched human being among the worst of sinners and that Jesus came to save you. You see, self-righteous and Christian, they are not compatible terms. Are you ashamed of who you are apart from Christ? I hope so. I hope so. Because then you will treasure Christ. I love what William Hendrickson said. To be saved means to be emancipated from the greatest evil and to be placed in possession of the greatest good. Think of it. Sinners forgiven of all that they are, done, said, thought, forgiven of the greatest evil in order to receive God as their greatest good. Salvation is all about Christ reconciling lost sinners to a holy God. And Paul understood his sinfulness. He said, of whom I am. I am the foremost. Paul considered him a high-ranking sinner and lawbreaker, a person who Christ had come to save. Paul was rightfully hard on those false teachers. He drilled them, and he should have. He was right to tell Timothy to rebuke them, but not without humbly admitting how bad he was and how greatly he needed Christ. Now, I don't have time to go into detail about this. I hope I can quickly get it across, but think carefully about Paul's statement, I am the foremost. He saved at this point. He did not say, I was the foremost. It's not that Christ saved him and then he continued to live like hell as the worst of sinners. That's not his point. He used the word formally. 
That's a huge clue. And he also, in other passages, told people to imitate him as he was imitating Christ. So Christ changed him, absolutely. And as a Christian man, Paul knew that his life was actually exemplary for others to follow because God's grace and mercy were at work in him. So his mentality was far from, I'm a miserable, lousy sinner who can't do anything right. I'm just sinning my way to heaven. Uh, That's not what he was saying. I think what Paul meant was that he knew he was the worst of sinners. He knew Christ had saved and transformed him into a new man. He knew of Christ's strength at work in him, but he also knew of the strength of sin still dwelling in his flesh. He was no longer defined by his sin. He was a saint defined by Christ, but he was aware that sin still dwelled in him and his flesh was still miserably wretched, miserably sinful, I think he was well aware of the ongoing struggle. A bit ago, I mentioned this verse in another sermon, and you might remember that, and and I advocated that the Bible doesn't refer to Christians as sinners. And this is one of the verses that people go to, and I try to convey the thought that Christians are not defined by their sin, but they are defined by Christ. However, they continue absolutely to sin. So in one sense, they are horrible sinners, yet in another sense, they are the beautiful and loved children of God who walk by the Spirit in righteousness and holiness. They are different from the world because of Christ. So Paul uses the present tense here, and I think because he was well aware of his ongoing battle with his wretched and sinful flesh. I think that's what's going on. I know at least this much. Paul sought to admit his utter sinfulness and need of Christ and sought to exalt Christ as the mighty Savior to encourage his young protege, Timothy. Brothers and sisters, particularly those of you who have walk with Jesus for many years, the long-term Christians, okay? But everybody who, who is a brother and sister. It is so easy for us to think well of ourselves um, that somehow, because we trust Christ, that we are somehow better than those people. Are you, are you following this? That, that it's easy for us to look at our own religious habits and accomplishments and feel superior to unbelievers. And that holier-than-thou ethos or culture within the church is evil, evil, because it diminishes the glory and beauty of Christ. The incessant and ongoing mantra of the Christian should be, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. I am the foremost. The heartbeat of the most mature Christians is Christ Jesus came into the world to save me because I am really bad. It is those people who are free, who are happy, joyful, and so strong to do what God calls them to do. It is the self-righteous self-sufficient and self-assured people who remain enslaved to the whims of their own weaknesses and reduced to incapability and inactivity. John Calvin captured our struggle so well. 
I've been reading a little bit more of him because he's been good recently in this. But he said this, our mind is always impelled to look at our worthiness. And as soon as our unworthiness is seen, our confidence sinks. Accordingly, the more anyone is oppressed by his sins, let him the more courageously betake or commit himself to Christ relying on this doctrine that he came to bring salvation not to the righteous, but to sinners. Do you understand what Calvin was saying? We naturally long to look inside of ourselves and to see worthiness. But when it dawns on us that we are unworthy, we get depressed. The bottom falls out. Where do we go? And that's because at that moment we are looking at the wrong thing. Calvin is saying we must look to Christ because despite our dreadfully sinful condition, Christ came to save us. And though we don't measure up, we can take confidence in who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, and what Christ can do in and through us for the glory of God. Our sin is not paralyzing. When we fix our eyes on Christ. Now you may remember Dr. Robert Schuller, who pastored the Crystal Cathedral and he was on television with his Hour of Power program. He wrote this in one of his books. You really have to hang closely on his words. Listen closely. I don't think that anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. It would be cruel to tell people of their lawlessness without also telling them of their hope of righteousness found only in Christ. Cruel. At the same time, it would be equally cruel to tell people of Christ without telling them of their great sinfulness and need of Christ. So the law and the gospel work together. If humanity is essentially good-natured, I hear that a lot among Christians. I, I, he's a good guy. What do you mean? I don't get that. I do get it, but I also don't get it. All right, if humanity is essentially good-natured, needing a, a good boost of self-esteem, then the incarnation of God's Son is useless and the glory of Christ is faint. Yet if humanity is utterly sinful and condemned under the law, then the incarnation of God's Son is magnificent and the glory of Christ is bright. When the condemnation of sinners beneath the law works together with the rescue of sinners by Christ, then the glory of Christ shines. shines. So I'd like to end here. Number six, Christ's merciful rescue of sinners is designed to display his perfect and glorious patience for people to see. This is what I'm hoping you really understand. Verse 16, but I received mercy... For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
Once again, Paul said, I received mercy. Why? Well, he told us plainly that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. God took this really bad guy, really bad guy, with all his law-breaking, all of his blasphemy, all of his persecution and violence, and saved him, and then displayed in him Christ's perfect patience. All glory goes to Christ. Christ is so merciful, gracious, and patient with sinners. For a time, for a time, he tolerates their rebellion and beckons them to come to him for life. His patience with merciless souls displays his glory When really bad people get saved by Christ, people see the glory of Christ shine in those really bad people. If you think about it, for close to 2,000 years, believers have been looking to Paul and seeing in him the glorious patience of Christ. His story is meant to encourage you, is meant to strengthen you, is, is, is meant to build you up. If you leave here and you are just depressed and anxious about your sinfulness and all the things that you've done and thought and did, if you're all worked up and you leave here with that pressure and weight and burden on your shoulders and anxious about everything that you have all, always done in the past, your sinfulness, your failures, your insecurities then you have not understood Paul and you're focusing on the wrong thing. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. See his mercy. See the strength that he has for you when you trust him. Let's end right here. Swim in the ocean of his grace and enjoy your place among the faithful. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Paul was so humble and so clear about the gospel and about his great need of it. And I'm so glad that we can hear by your law and by your testimony here through Paul of how wretched and awful we are apart from Christ. And yet Christ's power and mercy and grace giving us faith and love so that we can be redeemed to be children of you, Father, loved and empowered to do your will. God, may we look to Christ and not focus on our past, but look to Christ and where he is and where he is taking us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.